Hi, I'm Diana Penunchal, Associate Editor of American Libraries, the magazine of the American Library Association, and you're listening to Call Number with American Libraries. ALA's 2023 annual conference and exhibition will take place in the association's hometown, Chicago. In this episode, find out where to go, what to see, and what to eat during your visit to the Second City. First, I speak with Steve Delinsky, author of The Ultimate Chicago Pizza Guide. He shares his favorite pizza places in the city and gives us the deep dish on some little-known facts about Chicago pizza. Next, American Libraries Associate Editor Megan Bennett talks with Suzanne Carr-Schmidt, curator of rare books and manuscripts at Newberry Library. They explore the library's pop-up books through the ages exhibit. Then I chat with Liz Mason, manager of the 32-year-old Quimby's Bookstore, which sells independent and small press books, comics, and zines. We discuss the city's zine scene and how librarians can incorporate zines in their collections and programming. And finally, members of the Call Number podcast team, our episode guests, and local librarians share their must-do activities for a short trip to Chicago. But first, here's a word from our sponsor. On Saturday, June 24th at 11 a.m., join Jeff Hoover from Tape Architects and other industry leaders at ALA's annual conference for biophilic design, impacting the emotional well-being of library goers. This session explores how to implement connections to the natural environment and library designs to support communities. Biophilic design can enhance all aspects of the library experience, including reducing stress, enhancing creativity, and improving clarity of thought. Tape Architects enhancing communities through library design. Which Chicago pizzerias are a must-visit, and what toppings should you try? Steve Delinsky, food reporter for NBC5 Chicago and author of The Ultimate Chicago Pizza Guide, a history of squares and slices in the Windy City, shares his expertise and wants you to know this isn't just a deep-dish town. Visitors to Chicago might be under the impression that Chicago pizza is synonymous with just deep dish, but what are some of the other styles you can find in the city, and do they vary across neighborhoods? Boy, they're all over the city. Um, I, in my research, I found at least 10 styles, arguably 11 styles of pizza, and the three main prongs of Chicago-style pizza would be deep dish, stuffed, and then tavern-style and you could also split hairs and say there's deep dish and deep pan. There is a, a difference between deep pan and deep dish. So that's technically four styles right there. And then there's Detroit and Sicilian and Roman and Neapolitan and artisan and regular thin. A lot of different styles in Chicago. It really varies. I mean, every neighborhood has its has different ones. I wouldn't say it depends what neighborhood you're in. I just think in general... South side, you'd see tavern style, deep and stuffed. Um, you don't see a lot of, of the other ones that I mentioned. North side, you tend to see a little bit of uh, variation between the Detroits, the Sicilians, um, and the Neapolitans. And what's your favorite style of Chicago pizza? Where is your go-to restaurant to get it? Well, I really like Robert's uh, Pizza and Dough Company. It's a thin pizza. I would put it into the artisan category because it has a really long fermentation, at least three days. He uses an all-natural starter, so he feeds a mixture of flour and water every day uh, with flour and water. Um, that's his sourdough. 
and um, he keeps it chilled for about three days to ferment. And there's a lot of hydration, a lot of water in the dough that also contributes to its sort of open crumb structure. And he just, he bakes this beautifully brown burnished crust. I typically like a crust with three or four shades of brown to it. And it's really like he's, he's a bread baker. I mean, he's really baking something along the lines of ciabatta or a baguette. Um, so Robert's is really one of my favorites. There's a thin place. The place is called Crushed Pizza that I'm thinking of. Crushed. It's uh, Montrose and Ashland. They do something really nice. Again, a, a longer fermentation. Fermentation builds flavor in, in a crust in a pizza. And I think the best pizzas typically, are, the focus is on the crust quality. So even a, like a little neighborhood place like Crush does a great job. And you also run a pizza tour company and host a pizza podcast of your own, Pizza City with Steve Delinsky. How did your love affair with pizza begin? It really was out of necessity. I felt like people were just, people from out of town were controlling the narrative, especially late night comedy writers, people maybe who've lived here for a year or two when they went to college or came uh, for a long wedding weekend but never really did the legwork and, you know, boots on the ground. And so I had read one too many listicles of the quote unquote, seven hottest pizza places in Chicago. And I decided to kind of get to the bottom of it. And I just kind of set out, you know, I'll do it in like two or three months and I'll maybe visit 30 or 40 places. And, and that would be it. But as I started going out and exploring, people would chime in on social media. You know, if you're going to do a serious pizza crawl, you've got to include Pudgies and Hedwish. You've got to include Barnaby's and Northbrook. You've got to include Phil's and Oaklawn and on and on it went. So I, I just chased down all these, a lot of them that were dead ends, but I really wanted to get a sense for like time and place, six months, you know, in 2017, what does the pizza landscape look and feel and taste like? Uh, I didn't want somebody just because they've been in business for 40 or 50 years doesn't, doesn't mean they get a pass. And that's unfortunately what happens a lot of times in Chicago. Oh, they've been in business for 60 years. They must be doing something right. Well, maybe they're the only pizza place in the neighborhood. <laughs> You know, and people just don't know any bit, any different or any better. And so I really wanted to get a sense for what was in our region. So that's kind of where it started, 2017, 2018. And then book led to the tour business because, again, I felt like there wasn't anybody talking about, I mean, there were people that took tours to the, the popular places or the well-known places, but I wanted to go to the, the hidden places and the ones that, you know, maybe people didn't hear about. And so that's how the tour started. And then I trained a bunch of people, my docents, to be my, my sort of eyes and ears. And so I've got eight docents that work with me now, and they lead our tours most weekends. And then the podcast kind of was born out of that. And then the festival was born out of that. What research went into writing your book, The Ultimate Chicago Pizza Guide? How many pizza places do you estimate you visit? And how many slices did you eat? Um, I, you know, I didn't even count up how many slices, but the Ultimate Chicago Pizza Guide was really based on my first book, Pizza City USA, which came out in 2018. And I wanted to build upon that. And especially during the pandemic, I realized a lot of places were pivoting to pizza. A lot of people added pizza to their menus. Uh, I noticed just this explosion in Chicago, kind of this third or fourth wave that we were having. And so I wanted to get that all down on paper. And so that was kind of the impetus. So it was building upon the first book. I probably, I mean, I know for the first book, I visited 186 places and that led to 101 that I recommended. I would say I visited another 50 or 60 places. So probably 230 places in all to get to 101, 102 that I recommend in this book. Ultimate Chicago Pizza Guide is divided by chapters. So each chapter is a style. 
And then most of the book is in the city itself, in the city proper. But I do have one chapter dedicated to the suburbs, kind of the iconic suburban places that you've got to visit if you're coming to Chicago. I probably have had, I mean, you know, each time I visit a place, I'm only taking a couple bites. So I wouldn't say that's a whole slice necessarily. So it's hard to calculate how many slices per se. And did you um, happen to consult any libraries or historians during your process? Oh, yeah. I talked to Peter Regas. Peter Regas is a great local historian. He really sort of cracked open the code on not only New York, but also Chicago and really did the research on the sort of the history of Pizzeria Uno and how Deep Dish came to be. So I quoted him profusely and, and give him a lot of, of, of shout out and credit, I think. Do you have a favorite piece of Chicago pizza trivia? And what's something even a local would be surprised to learn? Yeah, a couple of things. I mean, Lou Malnati's, uh, you know, is really born out of uh, Lou not being able to buy Pizzeria Uno. He worked there for many years, was doing really all the manager, all the GM work. And the owner at the time, Ike Sewell, who also got the business because of a really strange deal that he and his wife made with the co-owner, Rick Ricardo. Uh, most people will walk by Uno's and they'll see a plaque that says, this is where 1943 Ike Sewell created Deep Dish Pizza. And that's just not true. Ike worked for a liquor distributor, Fleischmann's Liquors. He made a deal with Rick Ricardo to put his wife's deed. Ike Sewell's wife was on the deed to the business in exchange for Ike selling the pizzeria liquor because it was during World War II and you, everything was rationed. You couldn't get liquor easily. So Ricardo made this deal and then sadly passed away in 1954, just nine years later. And when that happened, the business reverted to Ike Sewell's wife, Ike Sewell basically, and he claimed credit for creating Deep Dish Pizza. He just didn't do that. And while that was happening, Adolfo Malnati and Lou Malnati, his son, were working at the pizzeria. When Douay opened in 1955, they decided to call the first place Pizzeria Uno instead of the pizzeria. So that's how it got its name. And then Lou Malnati was rebuffed in like 1969 and took a year off and then opened up his namesake up in Lincolnwood in 1971. And that really kicked off the second wave of pizza in Chicago. We also had Pequod's opening that year. We also had My Pie opening that year. So I always say 71 is kind of the second wave of pizza, specifically deep dish. And the other interesting thing to know that the only place in Chicago, in most places you order sausage pizza, that's just a, a standard order in Chicago. Pepperoni is popular all over the country, but the most important topping in Chicago is sausage. And it's usually raw, pinched. They pinch off a piece and they press it onto the pie. And so that as it bakes, the fat renders off into the pie. You get this great flavor in the pizza. Well, at Lou Malnati's, you have to specify crumbled. Otherwise, it will literally be a patty of sausage pressed onto the cheese in kind of a hubcap shape or frisbee. And I think it's too much. I think it's overwhelming the pizza, but you have to specify crumbled. Otherwise, you get that hubcap. Every other place in Chicago, you get a sausage pizza, you get it pressed on and crumbled. What are some uniquely Midwestern pizza toppings or trends that you recommend an out-of-towner try? Well, without a doubt, the sausage jardinera. You know, I'm currently working on a, a frozen pizza brand with just sausage jardinera. That is the, the ultimate Chicago combo because you can't really get the raw bulk sausage in most cities on the East Coast. Typically, they'll par bake a link of sausage and slice it into coin shapes, and it's just not the same. 
Um, the other thing you can't get anywhere else is Jardinera. And I think Jardinera goes great on an Italian beef sandwich, but it also goes great on a pizza. And so I'm always sort of preaching and that's my gospel is like Jardinera and sausage on a pizza. Those are the two most important regional, local Midwestern things to have on a pizza. And on the flip side, what are some of the biggest topping fails in your opinion? People talk about pineapple a lot, and I don't mind pineapple if it's been roasted or baked. And the problem is the water. There's a lot of moisture in pineapple, and I don't want a, a runny, soupy, sloppy pizza, right? I want just the essence of the topping. So if you roast a pineapple, I don't mind it. If there's spicy soppressata or something like enduia that's spicy on the pizza, a little sweetness to balance it is fine. I mean, that's why there's hot honey now as a topping, because this is sweet and the heat, Right. But I, I think the biggest fail is when you put raw mushrooms, raw um, onions, raw spinach on a pie. Because think about it. If you've ever sauteed onions or spinach or mushrooms, water kicks off of those vegetables when you're sauteing them. And so you want to find a place where they pre-roast or pre-saute those items if you're going to ask for them on a pizza. So whenever I get a mushroom pie, I will ask the server or the person behind the counter, do you par-cook or pre-cook? the mushrooms at all before you put them on the pizza. If they just put raw mushrooms on, I won't get it. Are you considering a library construction project but have no idea where to start? Tape Architects has designed more than 100 libraries and has a 40-year history of excellence. Use our free library planning guide to jumpstart your next building project. Go to tape.com forward slash podcast. That's T-A-P-P-E dot com forward slash podcast to download our booklet that explains each step of planning a new or renovated building. Get your free guide at tape.com forward slash podcast today. Tape Architects, designing places that inspire. During annual conference, Chicago's historic Newberry Library will be hosting pop-up books through the ages. American Libraries Associate Editor Megan Bennett chats with Suzanne Carr-Schmidt, the library's curator of rare books and manuscripts, about the exhibit and how visitors can create their own pop-up book. To start, can you explain the breadth of pop-up books history and time? How far do they go back? And then how far do they go back in the exhibit here at the Newberry? Absolutely. The pop-up books actually go back before printed books uh, to manuscripts. And the earliest examples we have left are from 1250 uh, for dials or volvels that with calculating elements and about 1121 for things with flaps. And for the, um, the objects in the exhibition, we have items going back to as early as uh, 1482, and that's, that's a printed item. The oldest printed item in um, the exhibition is from the Newberry. It's a book on the art of memory from 1482. It wasn't the oldest version of it that was made, but the publisher found it was so popular, he sort of streamlined it and added a little uh, memorization device at the end that's a dial with a brain snake that turns around to different letters. And it's supposed to help you sort of regurgitate and revisit a number of different concepts. So if you were trying to memorize something that had different letters for the first words in each sentence, you you could try to do it that way. But it's also very cute. And what kind of items, both historical and contemporary, will visitors see in the exhibition? What are some of the standouts that the Newberry has here that people will be able to take a look at? One of my personal favorites is the, the pop-up of the, the Newberry that we created for the show, which is a, it's a kit that you, you take home and build yourself so that you can use some of what you've learned about uh, flaps and dials and pop-ups while you're here. In terms of earlier items, 
there's a real range from you know, anatomical weirdness with flaps that are sort of like a pin the tail on the donkey. There's some very, very weird women hiding in barrels from the 16th century for nefarious purposes or profit. And there's some books that are just very poorly put together that I think really shows how, how people didn't always understand the technology, but they, they had a good time with it. How did the technology, how did the construction of them evolve over time? What kinds of historical evolution do we see with the pop-ups? We, we call it pop-up books through the ages, because, you know, both for the sense of people of all ages being involved with them over time and the fact that they, they started very early. I'm sure there, there are some that don't survive from before uh, 1121. AD. But yeah, they really were not for kids initially. They were, they were scholars, they were to impress emperors and with a lot of color and gold and uh, you know, good news through horoscope dials. And, and sometimes they were just to make a very funny point uh, about you know, the way the world is and the way that we wish the world were. As I mentioned, the anatomy items, you know, there's a lot of teaching where you could, you could learn about the human body in ways you couldn't with actual specimens. When do you start seeing that shift into children's literature or it being more for a younger audience rather than a scholarly audience? It really takes until probably the 18th century, late 18th century, to start having dioramas uh, that are multi-layer um, tunnel books more into the early 19th century, where you start seeing landscapes or vistas that sort of invite you in. They could, those can be related to theatrical productions. I mean, pantomime had a lot to do with you know, these sort of flip-up books that, that would mimic, um, you know, the motions and the stories. But yeah, 19th century, you're really starting to get a big industry in terms of uh, selling um, pop-up books to kids and trying to uh, sell, sell them more once they were destroyed. And what kind of contemporary trends do you see today in pop-ups? I mean, how have they stayed similar to how they've been made or used historically or how have they evolved to today in any specific ways? How would you describe that? Oh, well, I'd say there's still... A big difference between sort of mass-marketed pop-up books and artist books. In the early modern period, everything was effectively an artist book size production. If it was going to be something that had a lot of parts, the artist or you know publisher would put it together. But if it was something a little more simple, the owner would have to do it or take it to a book binder to have it put together. And the results were not always what you would hope for. I think you probably do have more books that are you know put together now. I don't think there's as much of an interest unless it's part of the story to, to have people sort of do it yourself. Really, the, one of the biggest costs in production is the labor, which is why it was so much fun to, to bring that part of the experience to the, the, the visitors of the, the Newbury show. I mean, not only do we have other interactives on the walls um, by some of the cases, but we have, as I said, the, the Newbury um, kit is something you can, you can do yourself. Can you give some examples of the ways that scholars were able to use these pop-up features in in the you know 16th century, 15th century? How were how were they the pop-up elements helpful for the scholars? Uh, sure, you have a lot of astronomical um, applications. The, the very earliest ones were were somewhat scientific in that they gave you a way of charting um, uh, calendars or um, or sometimes uh, sometimes time um, you could uh, you could use some of these dials to, to tell time sometimes they claim to be able to do that at night but I'm a little more skeptical about about those uh, maybe maybe in moonlight but yeah you definitely have a whole subset of, of things like like maps and um, globe gores that become you know actual spheres uh, that are being instruments it's almost like a toolkit for understanding the universe but made out of paper 
And overall, what can visitors learn or take away from the history of this art form, its evolution, just this medium in general? Uh, we've always been meant to play with our books, I think, is, uh, is one takeaway. Uh, don't be surprised by what's in an, you know, an early modern book. It's really about you know, user interaction all the way through. What will your next library look like? How will it meet the needs of modern learning styles and adapt for the future? Tape Architects has designed stunning, sustainable libraries that work, ranging from an AIA ALA Library Building Award winning library to lead platinum historic restorations. Get inspiration for your next library building project from our project gallery at tape.com slash podcast, and be sure to catch Jeff Hoover's session about biophilic design at ALA's annual conference on June 24th. Quimby's Bookstore has been a purveyor of zines in the Windy City since 1991. I chatted with Liz Mason, manager at Quimby's, about how zines promote creativity and literacy and how librarians can introduce them to their libraries. How did you start with zines? Just a little bit of your own personal backstory. Yeah, I started reading zines when I was in high school and I would go to record stores and read things like Maximum Rock and Roll or Flipside or Fact Sheet 5. And I would go home and I would send cash through the mail to order other people's zines. And because I would be reading about other zines that were being published, that then that would nurture relationships with other people that would turn me on to other types of music and other types of subcultures. And then when I was out of college, one of my friends, the, my friend Julie that I published Cul-de-Sac with, wanted to start a zine. And I was like, I'm totally on board with that. I sort of identify as a writer that publishes zines more than a zinester per se. But it is definitely something that allows me to do my own editing and my own method of expression. In your own words, can you describe Quimby's and what visitors can find there? It specializes in small press and independently published books, comics, and zines. That is the short answer. The longer answer tends to happen when someone says, okay, I understand all of that, but what do you mean by zines? A zine is an independently published periodical that's done by a few people or maybe one person, usually in small print runs on topics that are maybe less likely to be covered elsewhere, tend to be a little bit more idiosyncratic to the individual or individuals that's making them. Generally speaking, the way that it's distributed out into the world tends to be done in a way that's not through a major distributor. And a zine can range in any number of topics. It could be memoir-based. It could be regarding politics and revolution or current events. It can be about mayhem or outer limits type of topics, comics, poetry, even fiction. I'm particularly interested in stuff that's a little bit more memoir-based, but because that's the type of writing that I do. We do carry a lot of that independently published stuff, and I think what we're the most known for are the zines and the independently published comics. So let us in on the zine scene and community in Chicago. What are some aspects of it that make it truly unique? 
I mean, I guess the obvious answer would be because there's a store here that will carry your work if you make that stuff. But it is also true more and more that there are more stores in not just Chicago, but other places that will deal with consignment or maybe buying stuff up front that are carrying a lot of the zines and the comics that are coming out. Now there are now more places to, to sell those. So at one point, that was fairly unique to only a handful of cities, but retail establishments that are willing to carry that stuff have become a little bit more common. So I hesitate to say Chicago is unique because it has Quimby's, but it is helpful that we are here. And one of the ways that we are helpful is that because we're a major metropolis, like many other ma major metropolises, we have art schools here, like the School of the Art Institute. So there are students who are making scenes, comics, artist booklets, chapbooks, that their teachers, who are now grown-up zinesters and comics artists, they're now teaching the classes. And at one point, these teachers, these professors were consigners here, been around since 1991. So when they were like high school and college and making zines, consigning them here, they learned how to do that. And now they're teaching it to their students. So then their students make zines and comics and bring them here. And likewise, you know, a lot of our old consigners grew up to be the archivists and the librarians. And so then they're the ones then that are responsible for being the ones to start the archives in places like libraries. How do zines foster creativity and literacy? As someone who has been making zines for a long time, I now interpret any situation that I'm in as potential fodder for writing. And anything that I'm consuming in terms of media or not just the written word, but movies, film, TV, experiences in my life, that is all consumed and experienced in the context of something that I could potentially write about. And it has made me less of a consumer and more of a creator. That to me is the ultimate way to be a literate individual. And a lot of that is inspired by being part of a zine culture and not just producing the zines, but reading other people's work and being inspired by that. And also, there's a lot of skills that go into desktop publishing. The writing, the editing, the re-editing, all of those things that go with graphic design, thinking through ideas, coming up with theories, doing research. That's all part of being a literate individual. And whether you use that stuff to make a zine or to write, maybe you don't make zines, but you write for some other thing, whether it's a website or a newsletter, that's all part of being educated. And part of being educated is being literate. And I always tell people when I do zine workshops, you know, you don't have to use the traditional way of grammar and punctuation that you've learned in school. Just make sure that however you're using it, it communicates effectively what you're trying to communicate. I'm wondering if you have any advice for librarians on how they can introduce zines to their patrons at the library. The first thing would be to have some zines there. And getting zines now is now easier than ever because there's not just stores that sell them, but many zinesters have an Etsy store or Big Cartel or any number of commerce sites where you can get that stuff. But there's also zines that are review zines like Xerography Debt or Broken Pencil that have tons of reviews. So just like the way that I was in high school, get those things, find those addresses, write to those people or find them on the, wherever their website is where you can order their zines and get them. 
And then zines are prolifically represented enough now that probably in almost every city, there's someone who makes those. Getting whoever the, the local beloved zine weirdo is, find them, talk to them, have them come in. They might not necessarily want to do a workshop, but they could talk about their experiences as an artist or writer or publisher. There's a, a lot of things that they can share with their process with potential audiences. One of the things that Quimby's has is Zine Club Chicago, which is produced by my assistant manager, Cynthia Hannafin. One of the things that Zine Club does is what I like to think of as zine show and tell. Everybody who comes to the meetings, they'll know what the theme of the meeting is going to be in advance, and they will bring zines from their collection, not necessarily ones they publish themselves, but if they're interested in zines and have some, they'll bring ones from their collection that are relevant to that theme. Each person gets a chance to talk about the stuff that they've brought. No pressure, they don't have to. Or maybe they like to come and they're a little shy or maybe they're new to zines and they don't have any to, to show everybody, but they might just be there to hear about some zines that are available or to meet people who make zines or who are also likewise interested in zines. And that is a really nice way of forming a community of people who are both enjoyers of, fans of zines, but some of whom also make zines. And that creates a type of community. Need insider tips on what to do in Chicago? Members of the Con Number podcast team, episode guests, and some local librarians give you the lowdown. Here's author Steve Delinsky to start us off. Something I'd recommend you do is just check out one of our pizza tours. Um, we start our Saturday tours and our bus tour at La Briola, which is right off Michigan Avenue. And we do four pizzerias, four different styles in about three hours by bus. But we also have walking tours downtown, walking in the West Loop, and walking in Bucktown Wicker Park. So very different neighborhood pizza experiences. And all that information is at pizzacityusa.com. Hi, this is Megan Bennett, Associate Editor for American Libraries. For someone visiting Chicago for the first time, especially if you're staying downtown and coming during the summertime, I recommend going to take a walk down by the lakefront and then on your way back checking out some of the nearby green spaces like Grant Park or Millennium Park. And I also recommend visiting some of our world-class museums like the Art Institute and the Field Museum, which aren't too far away on foot or via public transit like bus or train. If you're looking to get out of downtown and explore, something I highly recommend is seeing a show at the Second City, which is in the Old Town neighborhood, and it's this legendary improv comedy institution that launched the careers of famous performers like John Belushi, Steve Carell, Tina Fey, Amy Poehler, and so many more. They have tons of different shows there, and I guarantee anything you see will make you laugh. Hi, I'm Jamie Santoro, Senior Editor with ALA Editions and I recommend a visit to the Pritzker Pavilion in Millennium Park. The city of Chicago hosts a wide variety of free events there throughout the summer, and the pavilion is walking distance from most of our conference hotels. So pick a night, pack a picnic, and park yourself on the grass. During conference days, you can catch a jazz concert, a salsa concert, or a performance by the world-famous Joffrey Ballet. 
Hello, I'm Diana Penuncial, Associate Editor at American Libraries Magazine and your host. I recommend checking out the Chicago French Market located in the basement floor of Ogilvy Train Station. It's home to food stalls serving cuisine from all over the world, and yes, that does include French pastries. Um, I also just love grabbing bubble tea and dim sum from here before I trek out for the day. And if you need a few groceries, you can find them here as well if you need to stock up for the weekend. I'm Suzanne Karschmidt. I'm a curator of rare books and manuscripts at the Newberry Library. If you if you've got the time, the um, the boat tour for the Chicago architecture is always is always good. Um, for eating, I, if you like if you like uh, deep dish, uh, Chicago pizza is 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 you know it's where you where you get it. You know, lasagna and a crust. It's a, it has its detractors, but uh, it's it's great it's great on a visit. I don't know if you don't if you don't like that. I'm I'm, I'm very fond of uh, of Cafecito, a uh, Cuban sandwich chain that's uh, in a number of different places around the city, um, but local to Chicago. My name is Liz Mason. I'm the manager here at Quimby's Bookstore, where I have worked since 2001. Well, my answer to the question, where should you go if you're in Chicago, is obviously Quimby's Bookstore at 1854 West North Avenue. We're always happy to see people come in and say hi. While you are here in the area, in Wicker Park slash Bucktown, there are a variety of fun other places you can check out. There's a good used bookstore around the corner called Myopic Books on Milwaukee Avenue, and they have used stuff, and we like to refer people over there all the time. And then other cool bookstores in the Wicker Park area, generally speaking, volumes and semicolon, a nice, rich literary legacy that recalls such luminaries as Nelson Algren. <laughs> Hola, I'm Veronica Avila, Learning Commons Librarian at Dominican University. As a lifelong Chicagoan, I'm going to tell you my top three favorite spots. First off being the Mexican Art Museum in Pilsen, which would pair well with an afternoon stroll along the 16th Street mural wall. I would also recommend Bridgeport Art Center with a visit to Maria's Packaged Goods and Community Bar. And finally, my beloved Music Box to either catch a movie or enjoy a cocktail in their wonderful lounge. Hi, I'm Lise Garner, librarian at Hawthorne Scholastic Academy in Chicago. When you are in town for ALA, I suggest visiting the Chicago Cultural Center. There are free rotating art exhibits on the main floor, but the real reason to visit is up the marble staircase where you will see a stunning stained glass ceiling, the largest Tiffany glass dome in the world. And once you peel your eyes from the gorgeous ceiling, take note of the quotes written around the perimeter of the hall. The Cultural Center was the city's first library, so I promise the words are as wonderful as the ceiling. If you see us at ALA's 2023 annual conference, come say hello! In our July episode, we'll be discussing graphic novels, comics, and manga. Is there a story or topic you'd like us to cover next? Let us know. Thanks for listening.